Well, good morning, Savior Community Church. It's our eighth week staying at home due to the coronavirus, COVID-19. And, uh, and today we are going to jump into a brand new series on uh, the book of Isaiah, which is arguably the most significant prophetic book of the Old Testament. It, uh, it's, it's the one that is uh, wielded the most, uh, the most effectively in the New Testament uh, by those authors in order to uh, secure an understanding of Jesus' Messiahship. We're going to try to cover all 66 chapters of this book in around 10 weeks. Uh, there's, I can't promise that that's going to happen, but that's, that's the intent, which means today we're going to go through uh, a, a huge amount of material. Today we're actually going to go through chapters 1 through 5, and then next week will be chapters 6 through 12. Um, we're going we're gonna to try to do this in a manner where we keep the big picture in view. If we were to, to preach a paragraph every week, uh, it would take years. Old Testament poetry uses lots of words to communicate uh, succinct ideas. And so let's take a look at these, uh, these big portions of Scripture in order to get these ideas, right? Um, this is extremely important to understanding Jesus as the Messiah, to understanding the theology of God's plan of salvation, which is expounded upon and elaborated on in the New Testament. But this is where, you, in the Old Testament, you really get uh, a good look at what God is doing. Um, not enough Christians know about this book. I mean, if, if you were to, to ask someone, what is the book of Isaiah about? They might be able to give you certain moments in Isaiah, probably like in chapter 50 and on, but it's hard to like for them to, to say something from the first 40-something chapters. Maybe they'll remember something in Isaiah chapter 6 because that's kind of a big moment in the book for a lot of preachers. But uh, what is the book of Isaiah about? I, I believe that uh, understanding this book is, is so constructive to a healthy relationship with God, especially because uh, so many people are under the impression that God in the Old Testament feels like a very different personality than God of the New Testament. Uh, and, it, and it feels like God in the Old Testament is cranky and God in the New Testament is, is, is lovable. Uh, what you'll see in Isaiah is that it's the same God that, uh, that is throughout Scripture. He, he's, uh, he's holy and righteous and just, and so he will obliterate evil. But then he's also gracious and merciful. He will invite sinners to salvation. Right? Uh, let me give you the big structural approach to the book uh, so that you get kind of a, a sense of architecture. Chapters 1 through 39 will, will be Isaiah speaking uh, about the stuff that's going on around him in his lifetime, in his ministry, right? So uh, that will be about his present, right? He is talking about what is happening in the present for him, for chapters 1 through 39. Chapters 40 through 55 will be about his near future, right? It'll be about stuff that's going to happen uh, a little bit after he's gone, after, after he passes away and stuff, a little bit after his lifetime, he, uh, chapters 40 through 55 will be talking about events that will, will transpire a little bit after Isaiah is gone. Chapters 56 through the rest of the book, 66, will be about eternal ideas, things that will last forever and ever, truths about God and God's people that uh, are timeless and never change. So 1 through 39 is about Isaiah's present. 40 through 55 is about his near future. And then 56 and on is, is about the eternal future, okay? Uh, 
I want you to see the first verse of the book. This is the title of the book, but it's also the first verse of the book. Okay, for so uh, they would understand this as its title. That's how they did titles back then. But this is what it says in Isaiah chapter one, verse one. It says, "The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah." Now. I want you to note that this is a vision that Isaiah tells us. Now, vision sounds like eyesight, and then him telling us sounds like hearing, right? Uh, And it's interesting because he writes down this message, and it's not always these visual scenes, but he calls this a vision. Why does he use the word vision? Well, prophets were understood as seers, but, uh, but the way that he's using this word vision, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's the, a synonym for the thing that he sees. It's a seeing, and he is the seer, and he, kinda, uh, he says that uh, this is the, the vision that he saw. It's the seeing that he saw. It's, it's, this, you know, it's the same word kind of being moved over there. This is the seeing that he saw, and he's kind of giving that to you. But uh, maybe a better way to put that is this is a perspective that he sees. Because he's not seeing these, these uh, dreamlike sequences all the time. Sometimes he just understands the world the way that God wants him to understand it. And so he's giving you the perspective, the vision, that he sees it from because God has allowed him to see it that way. So here he is giving you God's perspective on what God sees concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, I want you to know Judah is a country. Well, it's, it's half a country in a way, okay? The nation of Israel started off in slavery to Egypt, right? You remember that? And uh, that's how the book of Exodus starts off. And then God uses this guy named Moses to free them and, and lead them to the promised land. And then he uses this guy named Joshua to conquer the promised land. And then they settle there. Centuries pass where they're, they're trying to, uh, to live for the Lord, but then they keep falling into idolatry and worldliness and all this kind of stuff. And so God has to raise up all these different judges, these, uh, these rulers and judges to, to kind of deliver them and bring them back, you know, re, re-synchronize with them and stuff. Um, and that's the book of Judges. And then Eventually, in order to be more stable, they think that the answer to that is to have a human king. And God is like, but I'm your king. That's what God is saying. Uh, And they say, no, we want a human king. The other nations have a human king, and they're doing fine. Give us a human king. And so God just lets them have what they want. And what they get is a human king, which means what they get is a, a sinner on a throne, which means that their ruler is corrupt. That's just the nature of, uh, of human beings and of humans in rulership. So the nation eventually splits by civil war, and it cuts into, into two lands. So uh, what I've done is I've summoned all my, uh, my incredible graphical, graphics artist design skill, I don't even know the term for it, uh, with Microsoft Paint. These are the same skills I used to develop my personal website with Microsoft Word. And I'm going uh, to show you this graphic, this incredible graphic. Here's, here's a picture of the united monarchy, okay? This is when Israel was one nation, and, uh, and it's just this big green blotch, right? That's, that's, that's the land that Israel owned. That's the nation of Israel. The people of Israel owned that land, okay? And then w- with their human kings and stuff, uh, there was a lot of fighting and there was a lot of, you know, there's a lot of corruption and all that stuff. And eventually it br- breaks into a civil war. Now watch this. It instantly divides into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, right? The northern kingdom uh, maintains the name Israel. The southern kingdom kind of like secedes and does its own thing and takes the name Judah. 
And the reason why is because there are 12 tribes of Israel, 10 of them stayed together. That's the northern kingdom. That's, that keeps the name Israel. And then Judah and Benjamin, uh, you know, they, they're in the south, and they took the name Judah. Okay, So uh, you, have, you, you have these two kingdoms, and what the book of Isaiah is doing is it's talking to the southern kingdom. Isaiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom. If you notice that the land that, that, uh, that's owned right now during this time of division uh, where it's a divided monarchy, there are two different kings over God's people, uh, that's a lot smaller than when it was the united monarchy, when it was one giant nation. Uh, two tribes to the south, uh, Isaiah is, is the prophet there, and he's trying to speak to them because they've fallen into sin. And uh, it's not like they're, they're not, if it's a competition, the northern kingdom, uh, they went off the deep end a long time ago. Uh, the southern kingdom kind of held on. Southern kingdom, Judah, uh, has a capital city, Jerusalem. And that's kind of where, you know, like where, where God wants to center uh, his presence and, and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, the, the southern kingdom held on longer to faithfulness to God and then eventually started to go wayward. Here's Isaiah then speaking. And, uh, and if you're taking notes, we're going to take these five chapters basically in five movements. Okay. Uh, the first one is just chapter one. That's going to be the big idea. That's just, this is an overview of the book. It's an overview specifically of the first 39 chapters, right? Uh, And then the next three movements are in chapters two, three, and four, and it'll be hope, judgment, and then hope again, right? Hope, judgment, hope. And uh, that'll be through the the next three chapters, two, three, and four. And then uh, chapter five, which is the last chapter we'll look at, will be about a parable and a warning, there will be a parable and a warning in chapter 5 to kind of close off the understanding that we're looking at today. I want you to know, though, that that's not where Isaiah stopped writing. That's not where he, he stopped thinking. So we're stopping in the middle of a unit of thought for him. He's going he's gonna to be thinking for at least 12 chapters of like the big message that he's trying to give. And so uh, we're, what you're getting is half of Isaiah's sermon, in a sense. You know, the first 12 chapters really form a more... Uh, solidified unit of thought. So we're just looking at five chapters today, and then we have to kind of cut it there. Okay, let's start with the big, uh, big idea in chapter one. This chapter, especially the first four verses, will serve as the book's summary. It's like an abstract or an intro paragraph with a thesis statement. You know, it's, it's, it's got all the main ideas of the whole literature packed into this little space, right? You already read... Um, Verse uh, one, so take a look at verse two. It says, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters, that's Yahweh, uh, God's name, uh, for Yahweh has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Now think about this for a sec, right? Right there is the reason why this book is being written. God uh, God's people have, uh, they, they've rebelled against him. And that's kind of something that you have to think about. This is not about the, the guilt of sinful mankind as a whole. This is specifically about the guilt of God's people. People who claim to worship God. And it brings up this very uncomfortable reality that God has opinions about how we live even if we're Christians, right? For them, even if they're, they're Jews, even if they're Judeans. 
But even if we're, we're God's people today, we're Christians. God has opinions on how his people live. And uh, we kind of think that, you know, we're Christians, we go to church, God forgives us, we struggle a little bit, but it's okay, it'll all get figured out. And we, you know, we kind of uh, pad ourselves a little bit to say, like, it's not a big deal. And yet this book is going to be pretty mind-shattering in terms of a reality check that God is still holy, he's still righteous, he's still just, and he has an absolute standard of perfection. And sin is an offense to him, against him. So listen how he speaks to his people, right? His own worshipers. He's talking to people that worship God or or claim to worship God. Uh, This is what he says about the way that they live in verse four. It says, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, for they have forsaken Yahweh. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Isn't it weird? Uh, I don't know if you you care about this, but I'm just wondering, why does the author begin verse four with a nonsense word? Ah, right? Uh, That kind of says something because ink and paper were uh, were not super cheap and easy to come by back then. Like, you know, even literacy was not all that popular. Uh, writing was uh, was done extremely efficiently and uh, you have to conserve resources and time and all that stuff. It's very to the point, which is why when you read the Old Testament, they don't spend a whole lot of time telling you about the emotional turmoil of characters. You know, they don't give you needless details. It's, no, it's not like anyone walks into a room and says like, the tension was felt in the air. A single bead of sweat fell down his face. You don't get that kind of storytelling, you know? You kind of get, he went here, said this, they, they did this, and then there was a fire and people died and then he moved on. You know, if you just look at the Old Testament, it's just very, uh, like, uh, it's like a touch and go kind of a thing, right? They don't put in a whole lot of details. And yet here, Isaiah takes a moment to just write, ah, you know, just this nonsense word. Uh, normally they would just be very, very uh, economic with the things that they're, they're saying, even though it's poetry, which uses a lot of words, each word would matter. And he puts that word there for a reason. And it's not like the ah that you would say when you're getting a massage. You know, ah, you know, it's an ah, sinful nation. All right, he's not comforted by that. He's, it's not helping him relax, right? This is, the, this is like the, the disturbed scream, like the ah, you know, like the ah, oh, it's the frustrated, exasperated kind of scream where he's saying ah, oh, because he's, he's so fed up with this thing. He's desperate for the reader to get the message. And he says, ah, oh, sinful nation, Right? That's what Isaiah is writing down. That's what God is saying. That's what, that's what is being communicated to the reader here to kind of grab you and shake you and say, come on, sinful nation, right? A people laden with iniquity. Look at verse seven. It says, your country lies desolate, right? Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners, meaning unbelievers, people who don't worship Yahweh, in your very presence, unbelievers devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners, right? Overthrown by by people who, who worship other gods. Judah is suffering because of the decisions that the country made in the past, you know, particularly for pursuing worldliness, idolatry, that kind of stuff. It's, it's suffering now. Foreigners are devouring their land. Unbelievers are attacking or oppressing or ruling areas that should belong to God's people and yet are being taken over by the enemies of God. If Judah wants to be like the world, then the rulers of the world are going to rule over Judah. That's just the way it's going to be. And that's what happened. And it's gotten to this point 
where you can't distinguish God's people from the people of the world. Right? The way that they're living, it, it looks exactly the same. Right? The way that they, uh, the way that they spend their money, uh, how they indulge their appetites and addictions, uh, how they engage in relationships and then break them off and then engage in others. You know, like just the, the, the lifestyle of the believers was the same as the lifestyle of the unbelievers. And God looks at that and says, ah, sinful nation. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Think about what God is outraged by. <clears throat> Note that his art, outrage is partly because the people were immoral, fine. But even if they cleaned up their act, even if they, they, they started to, to be good people, in a sense, you know, just to do good things and not, not do bad things, even if that were the case, he's still furious that they're not going out of their way to also defend the defenseless, right? To, uh, to correct oppression, to... Uh, to bring justice to the fatherless, those are orphans, right? To, uh, to plead the widow's cause. This is what he's saying is, is what, you know, true faith, true religion, this is what this is. To, uh, to go after the, the orphans and the widows, to care about the needy, to care about the people that can't take care of themselves. God's people should be doing that because God wants to do that. If you hate someone that God loves, something is wrong. Like, you're not living as God's people if you hate what he loves and if you love what he hates. So God is furious that they don't defend the defenseless. Uh, you know, orphans and widows, they had no income, no property, no, no status. They had no hope. They had no way to take care of themselves. Uh, and if God, is, if God is hope for the hopeless, then God's people are to extend hope to the hopeless. That's... That's the, the call for God's people to represent God. Verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Now that's the plan. He will destroy evil. He invites sinners to repentance. Uh, and this is his plan. Like he has thought about it. He's decided on it. And he will carry this out. So those three ideas, you, uh, you, you might want to keep in balance here as we look through the rest of uh, our passages today, right? It's the idea that God will destroy evil. And God still invites sinners to repentance and salvation. And this is his plan, right? That's what he set his mind on. That's, that's the direction he's going, and that's not going to move. The unchanging God is not going to veer from that course of action, okay? He'll restate it again now uh, about not just Judah as a nation, but specifically about the holy capital city of Jerusalem. Uh, look at verse 21. He says, how the faithful city, that's supposed to be Jerusalem, how the faithful city has become a whore, 
a prostitute, right? She who was full of justice, verse 23. Your princes are rebels. Princes just means rulers, okay? Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, Yahweh of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, he says, ah, I will, give, uh, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. Now, notice God also uses that ah again, right? Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. You can hear his frustration and his exasperation, and he's absolutely set that he will avenge himself on his enemies, on his foes, right? What God is upset about he will respond to with justice, with righteousness, with holiness. There will be punishment for sin. Think of the stuff that he's named, right? People love money. People love possessions. People do nothing for the needy and for the defenseless. And they call themselves worshipers of God. He cannot abide that. And he says, I will respond. I will get relief from my enemies and I will avenge myself on my foes. He calls people that, are worship, that, that claim to worship him, he calls them his enemies and his foes. He has made a, 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 a distinction there that even though they think they're part of God's people, he's saying they're not. Verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake Yahweh shall be consumed. Right? There you have it. The three ideas that God will destroy evil. Uh, God offers hope for salvation to sinners, right? He, he invites sinners to repentance and salvation. And this is his plan, right? And you're going to get that throughout uh, chapters 1 through 39. That's, that's the big idea of, of uh, Isaiah the prophet addressing the sin of Judah and saying, you're so screwed right now. God is going to destroy all of this. And yet, if you repent, there will be salvation for those who turn back to God. Right? That's God's plan. So, uh, he's going to elaborate on this now, right? Kind of for a long time. We're going to look at, uh, at four more chapters. He's going to go from hope, and then judgment, and then hope, then he'll give a parable and a, and a warning. Right? Let's look at hope. It's uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Let's look at hope, the first glimpse of hope. It says, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, right? The, the country of Judah and its capital city, Jerusalem. Verse two, it shall come to pass in the latter days, which is toward the end, right? It means toward the end days. Uh, it, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall, shall they learn war anymore. Look at verse five. It says, O house of Jacob, meaning people of Israel, you know, God's people. Come, let us walk in the light of Yahweh. 
right? Come, let us walk in the light of Yahweh. So what does hope look like? What's being said here? Uh, Isaiah lets us know what it'll be like in the latter days, meaning somewhere in the end times, right? Uh, That makes sense because uh, God is telling us how things are going to end. Hope is not something that kind of happens for an hour and then is gone for the rest of your life. It's, you know, hope in the end, right? The result, there will be hope in the end. And so he's going to tell you about the end times. So this is a glimpse into the future, even for us in 2020, right? Uh, It's still future for us. In the end times, he's saying there will be hope for Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, And some of the features that he names is uh, the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be the highest of the mountains. Now, if you know Jerusalem, it's on a mountain. It's on two mountains, really. It's on Mount Zion and Mount Moriah. But Zion is the one that it's oftentimes uh, referred to because that's where it originally was built and then it kind of extended out to Moriah. But uh, Zion is kind of a synonym for Jerusalem. It's a synonym for like the throne of God. So Zion, this, this little mount, which is really a hill, uh, it, it, it's not... It's not higher than like the, the mountains that you know, like you know the Himalayas or Mount Everest or anything like that. But when it says it'll be the highest of the mountains, either that's a promise of major geographical change or it's really saying that it's the most exalted. Because the, uh, the, the language of something being highest or high up is used in the Old Testament to talk about lifting something up in exaltation, right? We lift the Lord's name on high, Right? That's not to do with altitude, but with glory and with honor. So it'll be the most honored in that sense. That for sure is true, whether or not it will be physically uh, higher than the other mountains. I don't know. That's, uh, you, can, you can have an opinion on that all you want. Right? Um, but that's, that's one feature of the end times, that Zion, the mountain that Jerusalem is on, will be the most honored, the most exalted place to be. Uh, another idea is that all the nations will flow to it, um, people will go there to learn God's ways, right? From all over the globe, anyone who wants to learn about God and, and learn God's heart and, and walk in his paths, they can go to Jerusalem. So something in the end times will be, a, uh, will be, uh, will be characterized by God ruling and the people of, of the earth everywhere being able to have access to come and learn from him. Uh, third, it means that that God needs to be ruling instead of a human ruler, right? God is the one that's going to be judging between the nations and stuff. So he's going to, he's going to be there in some form or fashion. Uh, fourth, it means that, uh, that there's still sin in the world, and that's why God is settling disputes between nations and stuff. They're still disputing and stuff going on. There, there are moments where there's a lack of harmony. So it's still sin in the world. It's not, this isn't, ultimate heaven, new earth. It's, it's not that, you know, it's, it, it's still a time uh, before sin is completely destroyed, but God is ruling in Jerusalem and the whole world can come there. And, you know, and, and basically Jerusalem is the capital of the world. And then uh, one final feature is uh, during this time, there is no war. When God is ruling on the throne in Jerusalem, uh, and, and everyone can flow to him and learn from him stuff, uh, there will be no war. Now, that's a picture of finally getting government right. It's ruled by God as king. The whole world knows it. And uh, if you know me, you know that I want to explain this thing for like the next 20 weeks. 
but Isaiah kind of puts it to us that briefly, so I kind of have to leave it off there. The only shortcut that I could give you is this. This is a preview of what's called the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom, and it's talked about in Revelation 20. Okay, In the end times, when Jesus has come back, it's the second coming, when he comes back, he uh, destroys his enemies on the earth, and then he sets up his throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years, and he's ruling, and all the nations are, you know, are, are now governed um, by Jerusalem, and they can go and, and learn from him and everything. There's no more war and all that stuff for a thousand years, and then he lets uh, Satan out of, of jail, basically, and then uh, Satan mounts the final assault, and then Jesus throws him into hell. Okay, it's a spoiler alert. That's what happens. Uh, that's the hope picture that you get in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Now look at judgment, which is from chapter 2, verse 6, all the way to basic, uh, well, chapter 4, verse 1. Okay, it, that's the judgment section. Uh, we won't look at every verse, but uh, we'll look at, at as many as we can. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Let's start there. Chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, the Lord Yahweh of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread, all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable, right? This is what God will do to the country of Judah and to its capital city of Jerusalem. No more food, no more water, no more army, no more order, no more spiritual leaders, no more societal structure, no more strength. They'll be ruled by children, which implies that kings will be in rulership and then they'll die very early and their kids aren't even ready to take the throne, but that's just what happens, you know, the, the next in line has to take, take the throne. So there's going to be a huge turnover rate of rulership and all that stuff. There's going to be oppression. No one's going to care for each other. No one's going to respect anyone. No one's going to have honor for one another. It's just, it's a breakdown of society. And if you pay attention, God isn't going to make this stuff happen. He's not going to cause people to sin. That's not it. They're already doing these things if you've been paying attention, right? They're already acting this way and God just stops restraining it. He just stops holding all that evil back. You know, he's just like, okay, you know, if that's what you want, do it. If, if, if ever you have children, sometimes they want to do something and you got to restrain them. But then sometimes, you know, they're, they're insistent. You're like, all right, fine, just do it. I don't care, just do it. And then you just let them do something stupid, you know, slam their face into a bowl of spaghetti and then get it all over, the, whatever. You know, but just kids do things that, uh, that don't help them. You know, and, and sometimes you just go, oh, okay, I- I'm done. You just go ahead and do it. Uh, if, you, if you pay attention to God, he's not causing people to sin, but he's removing the restraints and he's just saying, all right, fine. You've been rebelling against me and I've been trying to hold you back and instruct you and and tell you, warn you where that's going to lead you and stuff, but you love it so much that you still want to go after it and you're kicking against me and stuff. And so fine, if that's what you want, that's exactly what you get. Now, this is a, a, a very clearly explained idea in Romans chapter one, right? God gives us over to our passions, gives us over to our godless thinking, gives us over to our sin. That's what he does to mankind, Right for for those that uh, that uh, are are against God, futile in their thinking, the wrath of God is coming after them. He's like, okay, fine. If that's what you want, that's what you get. 
because it'll take you down a path and that path has a destination and you can't come back from that destination. But if that's where you want to go, fine. I gave you every warning. I gave you every instruction. I gave you free offers to get to a different place that's a lot better. But if you're just so committed to destruction, go for it. Be my guest. So he, he just kind of takes his hands off and says, fine, if you want to break society apart and everyone just for himself, watch what happens. Because when everyone is for themselves, society isn't society anymore. It's anarchy. It, it completely falls apart. It's, it's violence. It's, uh, it, it, it's chaos, right? Uh, if you, I, you'll, everyone will agree. If you give a kid everything he wants, the kid becomes spoiled, Right? And that's exactly what, it, like, it doesn't turn out for the kids good. If God just lets these people have everything that they want, it's not going to turn out for, for the good. They're just the way that human beings are, we just keep driving toward uh, our, our selfishness and our, our self centeredness, and, uh, and it just drives us toward evil. Um, so God says, All right, if, if that's, you've heard every warning, you've heard every teaching, and if that's what you want, that's what you get. Verse 8. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against Yahweh, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Now, this is a pretty important characteristic that's identified of the people here, right? God hasn't given up on his people because they sin. He's given up on people who love their sin and are against him, right? It's one thing if you love God and then you're struggling with sin and you're like, ah, I, I, I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do. And you, like, there's this internal struggle. But when you're like, no, I want to be this way. This is the way I am. And so God needs to get off my case. I don't like God telling me what's right and wrong. I don't like God calling me to, you know, to live a different way. Like just leave me alone. When, when that's the case, that's when they're defying his glorious presence. That's when uh, their deeds are against Yahweh, right? Where they wish that they were their own God and they could call the shots. He, God hasn't given up on his faithful people. He, he's, he's basically said that those who just hate his lordship, he's saying, fine, be your own Lord and see where that gets you. Because I'm going to take care of my creation my way and I'm going to redeem it a certain way. And uh, uh, you know, those who, who want to be with me, they're going to be with me. And everyone who doesn't want to be with me is going to be on your own. So you create your own universe. You create your own reality. Do it. And then there you are on your own with no power to do anything to, uh, to create a destiny for yourself. They, uh, they call themselves worshipers of God, they, right? They're, they're in Judah. They thought they were part of the people of Israel. They were there, but they're actually enemies of God. Their hearts are in love with their money. Their hearts are in love with their beauty. They don't care about the suffering of the poor and the needy. They don't care about what God cares about. Uh, And that all gets proven. Look at verse 13. Look, Um, Yahweh has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. Yahweh will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people, the rulers of his people. He says, it is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord Yahweh of hosts, right? Those are the ones who are in love with their money and, and they don't care for the needy. And a lot of times their wealth is, uh, is collected and gained by exploiting the poor, 
it's, it, it, it almost uh, is surprising how politically charged some of these things sound. Right? Uh, verse 16. Yahweh said, because the daughters of Zion are, uh, daughters of Zion mean the women of, of Jerusalem, the women of, of Judah, right? The daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. I don't know what that means. I think that's jewelry. It, it sounds different to me when you're tinkling with your feet. But verse 17, therefore the Lord will stretch with the, uh, with the scab the heads of the daughters of, uh, of Zion and Yahweh will lay bare their secret parts. Right? These are the ones who are in love with their beauty and they don't care what God cares about. They care about things that God's like, why does that matter to you? Right? Your, your, your body image, your physical beauty and stuff. Why is that such a big deal to you? Why isn't it the, the, the inner person of the heart, the, the gentle and quiet spirit that matters? Why isn't it character and integrity, humility? Why isn't it that? Why is it that you just have to have nice hair, nice skin and, uh, and have the right measurements? Why does that matter? Verse 18, in that day, and I want you to key in that it, it's, it's locating it into a, a, a certain time era. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt a rope, and instead of well-set hair, baldness, and instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty. The rich, the beautiful, the powerful, the comfortable, they'll be brought to ruin, and they'll be branded, right? Branded is where you take a hot iron and, and you sear the skin of an animal to mark it with your, with your symbol to say it's your property. It means that these people who are rich and powerful and beautiful and, and comfortable will be enslaved and they'll become property. They'll be branded. That's slavery. That's poverty. That's ruin and, and destruction. Right? Some other nation or some other power and force will come in and conquer them and crush them and own them. That is a dark and dismal future that God is promising. That's his plan. Right? He's not going to move from that. That is what he's promising to the nation of Judah because of its sin. And that'll happen, as verse 18 says, in that day. And that's, that's a reference that's going to keep coming up in this book and in other prophetic books uh, in reference to when they say in that day, they're talking about the day of the Lord is another way that they'll call it. In that day or in the day of the Lord, uh, that's, the, that's the end times when God will destroy evil. That was their own, uh, only real understanding of the Messiah, that the Messiah would come and destroy God's enemies. 
and then set Jerusalem on top of the world. And so they were expecting a military Messiah. They did not know that the Messiah would come and, uh, and live a, a humble life and then die on a cross and then come back a second time later to then dispose of evil. They didn't know there was this forgiveness of sins plan, you know, uh, first and then this destroy evil plan at the end. They, they didn't see that. They just looked at passages like this and said, in that day, in that day, that's when God will destroy evil. That's when all of this stuff, you know, all the, the powerful and the rich and stuff, they'll be brought to ruin. So when Israel, uh, when the people of Israel get conquered by the, uh, the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the, the Medo-Persian Empire, or the Greek Empire or the Roman Empire, they're thinking those are the rich, the comfortable, the beautiful, and you know, those are the powerful and God will take away all their stuff and, and instead of well-set hair, there'll be baldness and instead of, uh, you know, they won't have their inklets and instead of a belt, it'll be a rope and, you know, that's what they're saying. They're like, that'll happen to them. They didn't think it'd happen to us. And yet this is a message to God's people. Right? The people who think that they're worshipers of God, they, they're the ones saying, like, we're, we're part of the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. We, you know, we were the ones that God freed from slavery to Egypt. We're the ones that Moses led, and we have, we have God's law written down and stuff. And so they thought, yeah, we belong to God. We're going to heaven. That's what they thought. And here's God saying, you're going to be brought to nothing. He's not talking about Rome. He's not talking about Greece. He's talking about them. He's talking about us. In a corporate sense, people who say that they worship God. But if you're someone who worships God, who claims to worship God, and yet are in love with the world and want God to get off your back and just not, not call you to a different life, then he's kind of cluing you in. You're not really part of my people. Romans will, will talk about this, you know, this idea. And he'll say, not all Israel is Israel. Right? Even though he's talking to the nation of Judah and everyone in, in Judah thought they're part of God's people, they weren't all part of God's people. Not all Israel is Israel. Well, a day is coming when, uh, when God will crush his enemies, when, when uh, he'll destroy evil. That's the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's when it begins. That day that Jesus returns, that begins this, this period. He returns and then you know he goes to war with the, the powers of the world, and then he sets up the thousand-year kingdom, all that kind of stuff, right? All right, if that's going to happen, what about hope? What about salvation? Because that just sounds like destruction, right? Uh, what'll happen when the powerful are crushed and stuff? We get this new picture of hope in chapter four, verses two through six. Okay, this is what it says. In that day, again, in that day, so it's still putting it into that same period where all the rich and powerful and comfortable and beautiful will be taken apart and branded. At the same time, in that day, the branch of Yahweh, whatever that is, the branch of Yahweh shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. So it, it, weird ideas coming out here because it's talking about uh, whoever's left in Zion, whoever's left in Jerusalem, meaning there's going to be a lot of death. There's, uh, there's going to be a lot of destruction. A lot of people are going to be gone. And then whoever's left, whoever's left, whoever survives, which means that God, when he, when he gets rid of his enemies, he's going to get rid of his enemies. Then whoever's left, he has left to live. Whoever's left in Zion remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, which means 
Everyone that's going to survive, God has planned for their survival because they have been recorded for life. He has this book of names, a book of life. It's talked about in Revelation 13, Revelation 20. You kind of get it in a lot of places. But, uh, but this idea of a record of the people that he will call to salvation, that he'll, uh, that he'll preserve because they repent of their sins and trust in him. Right? Now, what is this branch of Yahweh? Right? In that day, the branch of Yahweh shall be beautiful and glorious. What is that? Well, it's a, it's a term that God keeps bringing up in different moments of the prophetic books. Um, and uh, you kind of get the best use of it, the clearest, in Jeremiah. Look at Jeremiah 23. It says in verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he, so the branch is a person, uh, he, the branch, shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So someone from the line of David is going to sit on David's throne. He's going to be king and he's going to rule. That's, he's going to rule the thousand-year kingdom, right? Uh, Jeremiah 33, verse 15 says, In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And you kind of get these moments where, uh, where this idea of a branch is brought up uh, multiple times. You get it in Zechariah 3.8. You get it in Zechariah 6.12. You kind of get it uh, referred to again as a shoot off of a stump of a tree in, in, uh, in, here in this book, Isaiah, in chapter 11. Uh, you, you get it in all these different places. This is a king from the line of David that will sit on the throne and reign forever and ever with perfect justice and righteousness. That's Jesus, right? That's, that's exactly what the second coming is for. He's going to come, to, uh, obliterate his enemies, set up his kingdom for a thousand years, and then Satan mounts a final uh, assault. Jesus throws him in hell, and then there's a new heavens and a new earth. Okay, so uh, this idea, this is the first time you get a glimpse of the Messiah. The first time uh, in, in, in the book of Isaiah, this is the first time that you get a glimpse of the Savior, right? Uh, he's described here as glorious and victorious as a ruler, and he defeats God's enemies. That's what's going to happen. He's the one who remains, okay? Uh, finally, then, for today, we get chapter 5, which is a parable and a warning. Uh, the parable... It's about a vineyard, which kind of carries on this branch motif, right? The branch is going to be good and glorious. This vineyard is not going to be good. The vineyard. So watch what happens in chapter 5, verse 1. It says, uh, Isaiah says, Let me sing for my beloved, his beloved being God. Let me sing for God my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved, meaning God, God had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and he cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So Isaiah is singing for God a a song that that says the nation of Judah is a a vineyard and it's supposed to produce grapes, sweet grapes, you know, um, like good tasting grapes, but it produces wild grapes, which uh, wild grapes meant that they, they stink and they are sour. Those are wild grapes, right? They smell awful and, uh, and then they, they taste just as bad, right? So uh, God is going to destroy the vineyard naturally because this vineyard, like, you know, if, you're, if you're trying to grow fruit and then your fruit tastes like, you know, foot, then you're, you don't want to like, you don't want to keep that vineyard. You're just like, oh, this is awful, right? So, uh, so you, you want to burn it down. You want to destroy this thing, right? 
verse 7. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. See, that's this weird twist ending of the parable because the parable, if you're reading it, you know, there's a, a guy who had a, a, there's a, a, a person who had a vineyard and he, he's trying to grow grapes, but the grapes were awful. And so he decided to burn the vineyard. Now, if you're the reader of this parable, you're like, yeah, 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 that, of course, burn the vineyard. That's the way it's supposed to be. And then the twist ending is, guess what? You're the vineyard, right? Nation of Judah, you guys, you're the vineyard. Right? You, you think you belong to God, sure, but you're, the, the fruit that you produce is awful. It's not the fruit that God wants you to produce. Right? He wants you to produce good fruit, actually, like a care for, your, uh, for God himself, care for your neighbor, take care of the defenseless and the, the poor and the needy, right? the orphans and the widows. That's what he wants. He wants people who, uh, even if they're rich, their riches are used to strengthen those who have nothing. Right? If, if they're beautiful, he wants their beauty to, uh, to be representative of what's going on on the inside, right? Not like they're after this external beauty, but, the, but it's the inner beauty that they're after. And so here he is like, this is not what Judah is doing. Judah is going after this, the stupid stuff of the world, and you're supposed to be God's vineyard, but you're producing wild grapes. And so he's going to burn you. Right? That's that's what you get. You get, this, uh, uh, you get this, this promise from God. He's going to destroy all these, these wild grape producing uh, crops or plants or I don't know what the term is, but uh, what kind of fruit do you produce? I mean, think about this question, right? The fact that you're, you're dialing in on, on the live stream here and listening to the sermon, uh, the fact that, that uh, you're doing that, maybe you call yourself a worshiper of Yahweh God. Maybe. What kind of fruit do you produce? Where do you really draw your life and your strength and your sustenance? Do you draw it from him or do you draw it from the world? Right? There's this interesting idea that, that, uh, that Jesus says in, uh, in John. He says, uh, I am the vine and my father is the gardener. And he, he cuts off every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit. But every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it'll be even more fruitful. Right? And he kind of carries on this motif that like, look, either you're producing your own fruit or you're producing my fruit. Right? You're drawing from me. I'm the vine. And, and, and you're, you're like these branches that come off of me. He's kind of borrowing that metaphor. And he's saying, if the fruit that you produce comes from me, you'll be, uh, you'll be made even more fruitful. If the fruit that you're producing comes from anything other than Jesus, it'll be cut off, burned, destroyed. And so we kind of get this, uh, this, this lasting warning that comes out in, uh, in chapter 5. Look at verse 8. We'll, we'll just kind of shotgun through some of these. Uh, verse 8. Woe to those, meaning cursed, a warning and a, and a curse. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. Verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, 
who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. There you have six times Isaiah saying, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And he just names off six woes, six curses, six warnings. And just remember that for next week, right? Because we're going to pick up where we left off. But six times he just throws out, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. In verse 24, kind of uh, a little ways into verse 24, it says, for they have rejected the law of Yahweh of hosts and they have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. The first five chapters of the book of Isaiah are a startling wake-up call to the holiness and righteousness and the justice of God. God has opinions about how his people live. Anyone who calls him or herself a worshiper of God, he has opinions on how you live. And it's not just that, oh, I I believe in God or I know the gospel or I go to church and so I got this ticket to heaven and I could just kind of do what I want because there's forgiveness and it's not a big deal. Those are the ones that he's warning. God is furious at all that he sees going on in the nation of Judah because they call themselves worshipers of Yahweh and yet they live like the world. And they think that because they belong to this group of people, they're okay. And and God will just be like, all right with it. And God promises that the day of Yahweh is coming, the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh. That day is coming when all of it is going to get punished. All of it is going to be brought to justice. That day, the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, is terror for the wicked and yet purification and vindication for the faithful. How will that day meet you? The wicked look like this. You are full of the values of the world. You strike deals with unbelievers to give you what you want. You want your life to be filled with the things that the world admires. You bow down to and serve these things and you sacrifice your godliness in order to have gain in that arena. You find value in attracting people's attention rather than pleasing the Lord. You want to look holy more than be holy Instead of modesty, you are known for boasting. Instead of humility, you are known for pride. Instead of confession, you more happily sling accusations and gossip and slander. Instead of edification, you work for your ambition. The day of Yahweh will destroy you. The faithful look like this. Unbelievers will look at your life and see that you stand apart from the way the world works. Some of them will want to glean from you the wisdom and understanding that you've gained from God. You're not filled with passion for conflict and war, but any disputes you have 
you bring to the Lord to be settled. You know you've sinned. You know you produce bad fruit. And so you came to God not to be improved, but to be transformed. What once was scarlet is now washed white. What once was wild fruit is now sweet. What once used to belong to a cursed vineyard now clings to a single, beautiful, glorious branch. And he is Jesus. We have so much more to say about that. So much more to expound upon the the sin of God's people, the guilt of God's people. And then so much more to point us to hope and invitation and the free offer of salvation in Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray. God, we've got half of the message from Isaiah so far. Half of, of this unit of thought anyway. And our prayer, Lord, is that it sinks in deep that you, God, are a holy, righteous, and just God. And you have opinions on how we live, how we think, how we speak, how we act. You have opinions on that. And it is easy for us to think that simply because we heard the gospel or nodded our head to certain Bible stories because we go to church on Sundays. We think that because we, we've, we've checked off a few things on a list that we're, just, we're fine and we can live how we want to live and it's not a big deal. We'll just be forgiven. We'll, everything will be sorted out in heaven. And yet, here you are, Lord, warning us that that's not what your people really are. That's, that's a counterfeit. That's a deception. It's a delusion that we think we belong to you when really we pursue the world. And that's our treasure. That's our hope. That's our fulfillment. That's our satisfaction. That's the thing that we want in our lives. God, deliver us. Deliver us, God. There, there must be something that can rescue us. It's not us. And so we thank you that, that you have provided a way And you've spoken of a way where our sins were as scarlet but can be washed white as snow. And it happens by the work of that glorious branch, Jesus. We pray that as we delve further into the, the book of Isaiah that we would understand more what your plan is in destroying evil and yet still extending hope and salvation to a lost and sinful people. Help us to know you better, Lord. Help us to, uh, to keep our eyes open and to, uh, to look over your word and to drink in everything that you've said so that we'd understand your holiness and righteousness and justice and then stand amazed by your mercy and grace. Keep teaching us, Lord. Bring us back next week that we might know you more. In Christ's name we pray, amen.